I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Practicing the Way, Sabbath. In Exodus, the Sabbath is a means of tapping into a blessing to emulate the creativity of God. In Deuteronomy, it's a means of denouncing the oppression of tyranny. Sabbath is rebellion, a weapon against empire and exhaustion, an aggressive no to a lifestyle of consumption, and an emphatic yes to the kingdom of God and what Jesus called rest for your soul. Now, let me begin by saying this. I have a love-hate relationship with the video streaming platform known as Netflix. I love movies, personally, and Netflix has movies, if you haven't noticed. In fact, in 2018, two of my favorite directors released their newest films directly to the Netflix streaming platform and nowhere else. On the other hand, Netflix is probably most known for its substantial offering of TV series and children's programming, which I'm convinced make up about 90% of all Netflix, and almost all of which, to my personal estimation, is really bad. Um, And there are dozens of these things, shows that is, hundreds of them. They respawn on Netflix's user interface, propelled by algorithms that you have unknowingly energized just by clicking around. And you'll start to hear things in conversation based on those algorithms. Oh, we noticed you watched an episode of Arrested Development. Have you tried Glow? What about Ozark? What about you? Have you seen the new Sabrina TV show? What about Riverdale or Narcos? You've got to try The Crown. You simply must see Making a Murderer, House of Cards, and The Haunting of Hill House. If it's not obvious, I looked all these up. Just the other night, a friend said to me that she had completed every show recommended to her and was in want of something new. I need a new one. (laughs) But nowhere is this gaudy avalanche of Netflix's extravagant programming more evident than in the end credits of a Netflix selection. So for example, here is the first screen of the credit sequence following the film Hold the Dark. You can barely see it, but there it is, directed by Jeremy Saulnier. This is when the film kind of washes over you, and you're like, oh, that's it, huh? Let me think about this. But before you can do that, less than two seconds later, the screen looks like this. Boom. Now I can't read anything that's going on over here, and I'm being forced to look at whatever this is. Um, The technique is even worse for kids programming in which an advertisement for another show plays, whether you like it or not, over the credits of something like, you know, the magic school bus rides again, which is something my kids enjoy. Um, The same is true of sitcoms, which forcibly carry the viewer from the final shot of an episode, which looks like this, you know, and then to a countdown clock, like a second later. It starts in 13 seconds. That's how much time you have. It dares you to shut the television off before another episode begins and you're helplessly trapped. Well, it's already on now. We might as well keep watching the rest of that. There's like four more episodes in this season. It's as if Netflix is saying, hey, wait, don't get up. There's so much more to watch. You don't want to miss out, do you? And really, they're right. We don't want to get up. We don't want to miss out. We want to consume more. In fact, uh, as Americans, we are trained to want more, even while satisfying an itch to consume. An Amazon item, for example, an item page features just below the listing of the item uh, three categories right underneath that. You've got frequently bought together, 
in case you want to add something onto this order. You've got customers who bought this also bought this other thing. You know, you don't want to be left out like these other guys. They're already in the know. And then you've got sponsored products related to this item. Someone paid you to know about this other thing. You haven't even bought the dang thing yet. You're just looking, and already they are leading you to more options. And this isn't a new phenomenon either. Kids' toys often feature ads for other toys on the packaging. When I was a kid, uh, my brother and I would keep the packaging to, you know, that once housed like a He-Man action figure or a Ninja Turtle action figure so that we could like mark off on the, you remember, you remember, you had to mark off like, okay, we've got this, we've got Leonardo, but we need Krang. So you circle Krang, you know, a couple of times, like good little consumers that we had been trained to be. And it's not like we were a hard sell. Something in us as humans is insatiable. We want more. We want to work more so that we can buy more and then repeat. But the way of Jesus intends to draw us out of the relentless undertow of consumption and achievement. And one way to learn how is through rest. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. For a few weeks now, we've been talking about what it means to discover and rediscover this ancient biblical motif of rest. Specifically, we've been talking about the spiritual discipline of Sabbath, which is a day voluntarily set aside from the rest to stop, slow down, and delight in God's presence for the restoration of your soul and to grow in a lifestyle of unanxious, unhurried peace. We left off last week with the Genesis story and the Ten Commandments, and that's where we're going to pick up this evening. Exodus chapter 20. Let's begin with verse 8. You guys all right? You ready to do a bit of work? Okay, great. Thank you. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Now, notice again something we discussed last week. God has wired into creation a rhythm of work and rest. Both are good. Work is good. Rest is good. Both rely on one another. Both suffer without the other. Meaning there are those who don't work. Um, and I don't mean just in the like nine to five sense, but have no sense of calling or vocation, no partnership with God to bring goodness into creation, which happens in all manner of ways, whether you're a parent or a barista or an artist or an engineer, a custodian, on and on down the list. Without work, without some kind of calling, vocation, life rhythm, life becomes voided of purpose and significance, and you drift from one shallow endeavor to the next. Laziness, purposelessness prevail, all that. And like rest without work, work without rest is also destructive. Both underwork and overwork run contrary to the way that God has wired the universe and our own lives. Both empty us of our capacity to love and to live well. So here in Exodus, both are commanded. Six days of works of work, one day of rest, which is kind of this ancient sacred rhythm. Now stay with me, turn to the right in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
If you're new to the Bible, it goes Exodus, where we are right now, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. In fact, this is the final book in what is known as the Torah, which is a Hebrew word that means the law. And the story here in the first five books of the Bible spans decades of time. There are 40 years between Exodus and Deuteronomy. In fact, the word Deuteronomy is built from two Greek words. The first one means second and the other means law. Deuteronomy is essentially the second law or the second Torah. And the question is why? You know, why call a book within the Torah the second Torah? Well, the law that you read in Exodus, the Ten Commandments, where we've just been, was written on Mount Sinai, if you know the story, out in the desert, addressed to a generation of Israel that had just left Egypt, if you've you know, seen the movie or the cartoon or whatever. They were, in recent memory, slaves. But Deuteronomy, if you know that story, is written by the Jordan River. It's addressed to the children of that generation. They weren't in Egypt. They weren't slaves themselves. They had no context for the time that birthed the law in Exodus other than the stories that had been passed down. So in this story, Israel gathers around Moses and he tells the story all over again, at least the most crucial aspects of it. In chapter 5, what we're about to read, Moses is reiterating the Ten Commandments. But watch what happens when he gets to the commandment about the Sabbath. Let's read Deuteronomy 5, beginning with verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God had commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, in Exodus, if you remember, the command is remember the Sabbath. But here, Moses commands Israel to observe the Sabbath. In Hebrew, the word observe is shamar, which means to keep or to watch over or to guard or protect. Most of us think of that word, at least in this context, as like a way of celebrating a noteworthy occasion, like you observe a holiday, you observe Christmas, you observe a birthday. Both meanings are appropriate here. Guard the Sabbath, celebrate the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. But that's not the only interesting difference between Exodus and Deuteronomy. The command goes on verbatim, if you notice, until you hit verse 15. See, in Exodus, the reason for remembering the Sabbath is, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. But here in Deuteronomy, the reason is this. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The same command, but compelled by different motivation. So in Exodus, it's about the rhythm of creation. It's about how God works and how God rested and how the universe works as a result. But in Deuteronomy, it's about the story of Exodus. It's about the history of Israel. It's about where they've been. In Exodus... Sabbath is an invitation to rest and delight in God, the world that he made, your life in that world. But in Deuteronomy, it reads like a, warn a warning. Don't return to Egypt. Don't return to slavery. In Exodus, it's a means to tap into a blessing, a blessing to emulate the creativity of God. But in Deuteronomy, it's a means of denouncing the oppression of tyranny. 
Moses isn't changing things. He's drawing out something already in the story of Israel by drawing their attention to where they've been. So why the, uh, the shift in emphasis? Because this generation didn't know slavery, at least not in the direct sense. They didn't experience it firsthand. They didn't live through Egypt. And that story, if you know, is full of references to work without end. Here are just a few passing lines. Why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. You are stopping them from working. Make the work harder so that they keep working. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go out and sacrifice to Yahweh. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. And that's just taken from a single chapter of the Exodus story. Most of you have heard or read or seen the story. It's the story of Pharaoh, a tyrant who brutalizes Israel with labor, work without end, more and more to the brink of death. And it wasn't just the cruelty of the tyrant, it was Egypt as an economic system of more and more, the empire, if you know the story of the Bible, build, expand, devour more and more. And for that kind of enterprise, you need slave labor. The same is true today of the food and fashion and electronics industries, just to name a few. To build a global superpower, you need slave labor. Now, however you feel about America, good or bad, its history is that of a ruthless, devouring juggernaut. To get the American dream, to get the career, the comfort, the amenities, you need people to work, labor, lots of it. It's a lifestyle of slavery. And slaves don't get a day off. Slaves don't get rest. Slaves are subhuman, the economic fodder of the empire. So part of being set free by God in the story of Israel's history was rest. Finally, rest. And it's not just rest from backbreaking labor, but rest from the insatiable black hole of Egypt, the empire's system of consumption more and more and more. This is a story about Israel. So consequently, the Sabbath command is a command to remember you are no longer slaves. Egypt is behind you. There is a new king and a new kingdom. There is no longer a whip at your back every day, no endless piles of bricks, nor have you become slave drivers yourselves. Hence, the Sabbath commands on how servants are to be treated, how animals are to be treated, how the outsiders are to be treated. Everyone is welcomed into rest, not just Israel, and not just the rich, not just the men, not just the elite. Remember also that you are made in the image of God, and God rested. Israel, you are God's people. Be like him. Do not be like someone else. Remember what the Sabbath means. We are not going back to slavery, and we will not become slave drivers ourselves. So it was, in one sense, a kind of middle finger to the empire. It was a way of proclaiming, we're free and we will rest. We are not like you, we will rest. Now, can you already begin to see how this motif of the Sabbath as an act of rebellion is as pressing for modern disciples of Jesus as it was for ancient Israel? Pharaoh continues to rule and Egypt continues to thrive. And like it or not, we're it. 
America, as a global superpower, as an economic engine, is not at all unlike Egypt. Like a pyramid, the bottom of the world's economy is 70% of humanity, they say, and they have 3% of the world's wealth. And at the top of that pyramid is the 0.6% of humanity who have about 40% of the world's wealth. Now, in this illustration, is America at the top or the bottom of the pyramid? The top, the tippy top. To enjoy this kind of lifestyle that we take for granted, most of us, with three square meals a day and wardrobes and smartphones and gadgets and homes and multiple cars per household, it has to come from somewhere. And much of it is spewed from the systems of consumption and destruction built up by an economic superpower. So you need slave labor and imports and factories and factory farms. We're taking, consuming, hungry for more all the time. And it all sounds very dystopian, but it's always been this way. There's always an empire. In the Bible, it's always an antagonist. Egypt, Babylon, America, it's always been like this. And you can see it's not just an issue of the empire itself, but it's the culture of the empire. That is a lifestyle of consumption of restlessness, of want more and more and more. In fact, Americans statistically work more hours than any nation in the world. Um, in the 1960s, futurists predicted that work would decrease with the suspected outworking of time-saving devices. In fact, I read just last week that a Senate subcommittee under Nixon, Nixon's presidency worried that by 1988, we'd all be working 20 hours a week or less and that America would have to figure out a way to deal with this abundance of leisure that we'd all have. Um, but leisure time is actually down 37% since the 60s. And as a general rule, Americans work more than ever before, and they have more than ever before. America, which represents 4% of the human population, enjoys 22% of the world's economy. The per capita income of Americans has tripled since 1950, and they spend anywhere from two to 10 times more on consumer goods. In fact, there are, this is a weird statistic I read this week, there are 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage in the U.S., something like 7.3 square feet for every human being in America. What the heck? What's with all this storage? Get rid of your stuff, people. What are like, you need a separate place to put your stuff? Whatever. Um, so more money, more stuff, and somehow actually more unhappy than ever before, at least statistically. Americans spend $250 billion annually on antidepressants, uh, the second highest volume drug in the country. 45,000 people kill themselves every year, and that number grows annually, especially amongst teenagers and young adults, amongst whom suicide is the leading cause of death in the country. So the idea, the motif seems to be more work than ever before, more stuff than ever before, and yet more misery than ever before, like Egypt, Babylon, every empire before us. Now, maybe to tell you all that sounds pretty intense. Weren't we just talking about like a day of rest practice a second ago? And the answer is yes, but in the story of the Bible, Sabbath is about more than just a day of rest. It's about a God-crafted rhythm of life in the world and what it means to be God's people. Is work bad? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. Work is actually good, inherently good. Good work, anyway, there's a difference. Uh, before the fall, before the talking snake, we were actually created to partner with God to subdue the creation, create culture and art and all kinds of goodness out of the raw potential of the world. That's a whole nother sermon, but work is good. But work 
without rest is destructive. Work is good, but work without rest destroys. Is having stuff inherently bad? No. It can be dangerous, but not inherently bad. But stuff does not satisfy the soul. Only God can do that. And yet the ruthless gravitational drag of our culture often demoralizes us into believing this pace of more and more and more is one that we are hopeless but to obey. If you just had this or that thing, then you'd be satisfied. If you just achieved this or that position in your job, your vocation, then you'd be happy. If you had more followers or more stability or more comfort, parents who feel helpless against the cultural norms, who hand smartphones over to teenagers and more shopping money, or who sacrifice church and community for soccer games and extracurricular activities, because that's just the way it is. That's how everyone is. What can we do? But for thousands of years, Sabbath has remained as more than simply a day of rest, but a way of remembering that we are the people of God and we live differently. We reject Egypt. We reject Pharaoh. We reject the empire. We reject the tyranny of more and more and more. And with a simple rhythm of rest in your life, you can, in essence, say, no, I will not wear my soul into the ground. I will stop. I will turn off my phone. I will be content with what I have. I will remember the Sabbath. Work matters. Work is important, but there is more to life than work, more to life than more stuff. Sabbath throws a wrench and the engine of accumulation. In fact, out of this Sabbath command in Deuteronomy comes later prohibitions in the Old Testament against buying and selling on the Sabbath. That idea is elaborated out more in the book of Nehemiah, or Nehemiah, apparently. In context, uh, Nehemiah is a leader in Israel at a time when some of the people have finally returned to Jerusalem after having been held captive in exile by Babylon for decades, and they're trying to sort of uh, get their feet back on the ground as a people in their own place. Look at this from Nehemiah 13. It says, in those days, I, Nehemiah, saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes and figs, all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no one could be brought out on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. <laughs> From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go on and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. 
Now, of course, uh, this is a context quite different than ours. If you buy and sell on the Sabbath, it's very unlikely that anyone will threaten to arrest you. I certainly won't. But notice the seriousness with which Israel was to regard this day of contentment. The idea was stop all this buying and selling and merchandising. Remember the Sabbath. Though we no longer live under the law, the disciple of Jesus lives under the same commitment as the people of Israel to remember that we are not slaves and we are not slave drivers. To stand outside of and against the ruthless engine of consumption of more and more and say, not us. We are free. We do not belong to the empire. We are under a new king and we belong to a new kingdom. Work and accumulation are not inherently evil, but they are not the lifeblood of our existence. I don't have to make more money. I don't have to get that extra bit of work done. I don't have to advance or excel or climb the corporate ladder. I don't need another outfit or another photo or a car. I don't have to maintain a perfect grade point average. I do not have to do any of these things to be adored by my Father in heaven, and I am. He loves me. My family, my children, my vacations don't have to be amazing. I don't need more passport stamps. I don't need more Instagram followers. I do not need to capture every cool, fun, cute, or amazing moment for an Instagram story. I don't need to photograph them at all. I don't need the newest phone. I don't need the newest update. I don't need admiration or acclaim. I do not need to get everything I want. Egypt is over. Pharaoh is dead. My king is a loving father, not a slave driver, and I am free. My king gives rest. He does not whip me. We are being admonished on all sides by an empire of accumulation and accomplishment, but they simply hold no authority over me. And with no cute outfits or followers or prestige or position, I am still free. You, like Israel, practice that rebellious freedom in action when you remember a Sabbath day of rest. And it isn't about you only. Remember tonight's text uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 5 specifically said, The seventh day, seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. The invitation to enter the rest of God is not exclusive to the well-off or the patriarchs. It's not even exclusive to Israel. The wealthy patriarch of the Jewish household is invited to rest from work, delight in the presence of God, and equally so are his servants." even his animals. In his book, Sabbath as Resistance, Walter Brueggemann writes this, Not all are equal in production. Some perform much more effectively than others. Not all are equal in consumption. Some have greater access to consumer goods. In a society defined by production and consumption, there are huge gradations of performance and therefore of worth and significance. In such a social system, everyone is coerced to perform better, produce more, consume more, be a good shopper. Such valuing, of course, creates haves and have-nots, significant and insignificant, rich and poor, people with access and people denied access, 
But Sabbath breaks the pattern of coercion. All are like you, equal, equal worth, equal value, equal access, equal rest. Even the nicest among us often dehumanize those who serve us. The nameless ghosts who bus our tables or pump our gas or empty our garbage. And I'm not suggesting that those tasks are undignified or that we're wrong to participate in those transactions. They're fine. But consider this. When you take up a regular rhythm of rest, you just might create more rest for others as well. A few years ago, um, I was on tour playing music for one, win one winter in Europe for a few weeks, several of which we spent in Germany. And we noticed almost immediately that much like the antiquated blue laws of America that shut down certain shopping opportunities on Sunday, pretty much everything was closed on the seventh day of the week. And we were ticked. We were like, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> not go anywhere, not buy anything? It was a strange kind of realization that we're on another continent in another country feeling entirely hampered by a day when consumption effectively stops. And I remember thinking how interesting this is, that Germany, like much of Europe, has already gone the way of secularism, and things still shut down once a week. In his book on Sabbath, Dan Allender writes this, All those who serve the powerful, including beasts and land, are set free for a day. It's not a break or a respite to regain strength to live under the yoke for another burdensome six days. Instead, it is a weekly reminder to all that injustice and inequality is to be overthrown by delight and joy. To the degree the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless eat, drink, and celebrate the Sabbath, it will be impossible to conduct oneself in the next six days as if injustice is truer than the Sabbath. Sabbath is, in the story of the Bible, a rebellion. It is a weapon against empire and against exhaustion and against consumption. It is an aggressive no to a lifestyle of consumption and an emphatic yes to the kingdom of God and what Jesus called rest for your souls. So the next practice is a simple one. When you get together with your communities or some friends, uh, if you're not in, yet in a community, in your developing Sabbath rhythm, you will begin to consider incorporating thoughtful rhythms of abstinence from avenues of consumption. And again, this is not legalism. It isn't always black and white. It won't be the same for everyone. But the idea is to simply consider ways of thinking and being that focus on gratitude and contentment rather than a hunger for more and more stuff. It's up right now at practicingtheway.org slash Sabbath. To end tonight, let me remind us that Sabbath is about more than just a day. It's about a learned rhythm of life. Uh, a while back, I left my phone in a friend's car, and I wouldn't see them again for a day or two, and I didn't have the time or the interest to chase them down and get it sooner than that. And at first, it was kind of frustrating, the few days without a phone, even though you know, I made my uh, smartphone a dumb phone a while back, I still found that I had this itch as though I needed it. You know, There was an itch to look things up or to check messages or to search for new music and on down the list. And then a day later, I thought, oh, this is actually kind of nice. And then by the time the phone came back a few days later, I didn't really care as much. It was like, oh, yeah, right, that. And then when I decided to power it down for a day of Sabbath rest, as I do, I remembered that time just a few days prior. And I remembered that was nice. This will be nice, too. 
And really, that's what this entire practice is meant to create and to nurture, the forgotten relief of rest and delight. It won't always be seamless. It won't always be fully ironed out or perfect, depending on your rhythm and season of life, and we'll talk more about that before we end the series, but it can be done. There's a learning curve there. There's an itch to do stuff that often lingers, but then it's nice. And that relief sustained in the presence of God when one slows and stops and rests and delights, however imperfect that day might be, it still reverberates into the next day and then the next day. And a day when one steps out of the cacophony of consumerism and consumption isn't just a 24-hour break from shopping. It's like a training drill. It's an exercise that teaches and then instills in us and reminds us that actually we have enough. We have plenty. You are no longer slaves. Egypt is behind you. There is a new king and a new kingdom. Therefore, remember and observe the Sabbath. Let's pray together before we worship again. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.